you will. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in two places in the Bible. I'm going to launch off in Matthew 16. That'll be the foundation for our message. And then I want to get to Acts chapters 1 and 2 very shortly. So if you'll turn to Acts and mark that place for me. Thank you, Pastor, for inviting me to preach this morning. It's not unusual for you to be in church any given Sunday. I know most of you. I see you here all the time. It's what you do. You go to church. But I want to remind you something. There would be no place called church if there were no person known as Jesus Christ. And the very first time you see the word church in Scripture, it is in connection with this all-important question. Jesus is the one asking, whom say ye that I am? He's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And I want to tell you that a person's answer to that question is critically important. In fact, the answer to the question, whom do you say that I am? That determines the soundness of an individual church, the orthodoxy of a church, and it also determines the individual destiny of a soul for all eternity. Whom say ye that I am? It's a brief reading from Scripture. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read from uh, Matthew 16. I want to start in verse 13. We'll go down to verse 18. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Got your Bible there. Follow along with me. I'll read it aloud. You follow with your eyes. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Some say thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias. That's the Greek name for Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But whom say ye that I am? I want you to notice that question. I underlined it double in my Bible. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, most important question in the well-being of a soul and a church. Most important question. Whom say ye that I am? Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I circled the word church there in verse 18. That is the first mention of church in the Bible. And it's significant that it's in the context of the question, whom do you say that I am? Very, very important. Lord, I pray this morning that you would use the truths from Jesus' own lips to not only change us in our thinking, but change us in our living. Some may not know you, the living Savior, and I pray that today they might come to know you. Whom to know is life eternal. Many of us already know you. I pray they might see that you've come, that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. And I ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Thanks for standing with me. I'm calling the message today, Building a Triumphant Church. Building a Triumphant Church. Jesus had taken the disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. In fact, I'll I'll walk up here because it was up in the mountains. In fact, I, I went there back in 2001. I had the opportunity to go to Israel And I remember we went to Caesarea Philippi, and honestly, I had seen it on the itinerary, but it wasn't on the list of, you know, most anticipated places in my mind. I'd find the significance of it. So, okay. In the modern world, it's called Banias, B-A-N-I-A-S. That's an Arabic adaptation from Panias, Pan, the god who was half goat, half human. And Banias, now known in in Arabic, is uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's right at the, at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's just under 10,000 feet. And from Mount Hermon emanate the waters that form the Jordan River. Now, you know the Jordan River runs right down through the middle of Israel. If you've looked at a map of Israel, you see the Jordan River splits the country right down the middle. And it flows into the lowest place on the planet, the Dead Sea. The surface of the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet above sea level. In fact, it goes to a depth of 1,300 feet. So, interesting, the waters start from up just about 10,000 feet and go down, down, down. But very interestingly, the Jordan River is not some whitewater traverse. You know, it's, it's just a gentle descent, interesting, all the way through the country. Now, Jesus takes the disciples there. And interesting, there is a giant cliff at Benias, or at Caesarea Philippi. And he has taken the disciples there. Because carved into that cliff are the faces of some venerated beings of the past, those who were worshipped as gods. There is Baal. In fact, you remember Baal worship originated in northern Israel, 
as far as among the Jews that originated in northern Israel. Remember, they set up their capital at Samaria. That's why they became known as Samaritans later. But this was, Baal worship had originated here. So Baal is carved into that cliff. Not far away from him, there's this statue of Pan. Again, half God, half human. And then there was a carving of Caesar. You remember in their day, Caesar was worshipped as a god. Not only that, but at the bottom of this cliff, there was a cave out of which came water that formed the Jordan River. And the cave was known among the locals as the Gate to Hades. Now, some of you remember the word Hades is the Greek word for hell. The Gate to Hades, the Gate to the Netherworld. The Greeks believed that every spring, their gods would come back from the Netherworld and move among men. And then in the wintertime, they'd retreat back into that place there that was known as Hades, or the netherworld, hell. Why am I mentioning all this? Listen to this. There was one observer who wrote this about that place, and it's it's significant to what Jesus is about to ask them. So I want you to try to process it in your mind. In first century Israel, Caesarea Philippi would have been an equivalent to Las Vegas. Sin city. But much worse than the modern city in our American West. In the open-air Pan Shrine, next to the cave mouth, There was a large niche in which a statue of Pan, a half-goat, half-human creature, stood, worshipped for his fertility properties. Surrounding him were statues of his attending nymphs. On the shrine in front of these niches, worshippers of Pan would congregate and partake in bizarre sexual rites, including copulation with goats, worship for their relationship to Pan. Now, you talk about debauchery. You talk about sick. What? No self-respecting Jew would go to Caesarea Philippi. So the question arises, why did Jesus take the disciples there? I mean, if you had heard in our day, yeah, Jesus and the disciples were in Las Vegas, you'd think, why would Jesus be in Vegas? Well, you know, it wouldn't be for the normal reason people go to Vegas. Why would he be at Caesarea Philippi? So he's standing before this carving of these gods, and then he says, so who are the people saying that I am? Now think about the backdrop. Baal is carved there. Pan is carved there. Caesar is carved there. In the minds of men, these were the gods who had come and gone. And Jesus is asking, am I just the flavor of the month? Am I just going to be a passing fancy? Do you suppose that after my generation, someone else will arise? Who do you really think I am? What are the people saying? What's public opinion? They say, well, some claim that you're John the Baptist. He had been beheaded, but they think he's come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah because Elijah did all these incredible miracles, and the miracles you do are that of the spirit of Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So he's got public opinion going. Isn't it interesting? Most of them believed he was somebody that had already come back from the dead. He would come back from the dead. He had not yet. But they believe he's some some prophet of the past. And he's asking and they're telling. And then he says that all-important question. And by the way, when you look at verse 15, think if he had asked this of you. You know, this is just a spontaneous question. But what would you have said? But whom say ye that I am? I want to tell you, you can't say, I don't know. You can't avoid this all-important question. You might be here this morning and say, I don't have a clue who Jesus is. I remember one time I met a man. He had an earned degree, uh, two earned degrees in mechanical engineering. And I asked him, uh, who do you think Jesus Christ was? He said, I don't know, some Jewish cleric. Highly educated man in America had no clue who Jesus is. And I want to tell you, He's becoming more common than you would think in our country. Lots of people have heard of Jesus, but have no idea who he is. Whom say you that I am? Peter doesn't miss a beat. Notice his response. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now let me ask you, what's another word for Christ, folks? You know a synonym for Christ? Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Now, interesting, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. These men are beginning to realize, yeah, he is the anointed one of Israel. But then Peter goes further than that. He says, you're the son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? The Jews understood that to claim to be a son was to claim to be an equal. He is God incarnate. And what does Jesus say? Oh, Peter, enough of that. Don't venerate me with such a lofty opinion. No, he doesn't say anything like that. Look at verse 17. He answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. What is he saying? 
you're going to get political ads ad nauseum for the next couple of months. You already are, right? And at the end of the uh, ad is, I'm Joe Biden, I support this message. Or I'm Donald Trump, I endorse the contents of this message. You think, well, duh. I mean, of course you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be appearing, right? Imagine this. Jesus Christ has said, my Father has revealed this unto you. What, what greater endorsement could there be than that of the Father? God the Father. You know, it really doesn't matter what you think of Jesus Christ. It matters what God thinks of Jesus Christ. But having said that, let me say then, therefore it really does matter what you think of Jesus Christ. Because if you get it wrong in the person of Jesus Christ, you get it wrong for all eternity. So he says, you say, I'm, the people are saying, I'm this or that, Peter. You just said, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of the living God. Then look at verse 18, and this is really critical to where we're going. I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, Peter is the name Petra. Upon this rock, that's the name Petros. There is a slight but significant differentiation between the two words. Peter, Petra is like a boulder that is broken off of a larger cliff. Petras, rock, I'll build this, upon this rock, I'll build my church, is like the rock itself. It would be like the rock of Gibraltar or that cliff in front of which he was standing. In fact, many of you know one of my favorite places in the world is Yosemite National Park. Brianna and Heather were out there two weeks ago. They flew out to be with one of their friends, and I was envious. They got to go to Yosemite. And as soon as you drive into Yosemite Valley, you are overwhelmed by the presence of El Capitan. How many of you have been to Yosemite? I know a number of our people have. Okay, you drive into Yosemite Valley. As you come around, the first clearing of trees, as you find the, the vista of the valley opens up in front of you, and there is El Capitan. And then a little bit farther down is my favorite place, Half Dome. I love Half Dome. But El Capitan is the mother of rocks, if you will, in the park. It it looms over the valley 3,000 feet. It's the largest standing monolith in the world, granite monolith. Uh, The the guys who who ascend it, the rock climbers, will spend sometimes four or five days scaling the face of El Capitan. And very intriguing. I have absolutely no interest in climbing the face of El Capitan, but I always have interest in watching those who do. And one year we were there in the valley, and I had gone out to the base of El Cap. I I wanted to stand right at the bottom and just look up. But what's intriguing is there's a spot where there are giant boulders the size of Volkswagen vans that have fallen off of El Capitan. In their own right, they're enormous. Now, they're minuscule compared to the rock itself. The term Peter is like one of those boulders lying at the base of El Capitan. The term upon this rock is like El Cap, the captain, is like the giant monolith looming overhead. You're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Some have mistakenly said that Peter was the foundation on which the Lord would build his church. Not so. Peter is not the foundation. It was the confession made by Peter. He said, you, Lord, are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ is not built on the person of Peter. It is built on the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is the chief cornerstone. Now, you all say, well, I know that. It's such foundational truth. We couldn't just jump from there to the book of Acts. But I want to point out one other thing. He says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Interesting. Many of you have heard the word church is the term ecclesia. Ecclesia is from a called out assembly. Now, I want, you to, I want you to process this. I went back to the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia to look up the word church. I deliberately went non-Baptist. Let me tell you why. Everybody expects a Baptist to identify church as a local entity. Wycliffe is an interdenominational group. They translate scripture. Uh, they're very non-denominational, in fact. And, and listen to this. In the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia, here is the definition of the word church. Ecclesia never refers to a place of worship, but has in view an assembly of people. In the overwhelming majority of cases, ecclesia in the New Testament indicates a local company of believers. That's significant. I want you to see, when I was a kid, I I grew up Methodist. It was not a Bible-preaching Methodist church. We just went to church. It's what we did. We had the little, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. Did any of you ever hear that when you were a kid? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. Okay, let me, uh, let me clarify something. This is not the church. Okay, the building. This is the church. Not the fingers, but what they represent. The people, okay? The people are the church. Eagle Heights Baptist Church is not this gymnasium, uh, this gymnatorium. Eagle Heights Baptist Church is you. 
And that's why the scripture says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Um, if we were missing a few walls in this building, or if we had a few doors blown off in a storm and nobody replaced them, would you feel um, settled when you came into this building? You'd probably feel unsettled. Let me tell you, when you're missing, it's like the structure's missing components. You are the church. So that's why the Lord says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So, and you know, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. You're here. Good for you. I'm glad you're here. But why are you here? It's not just to do church. It's to worship Christ. So here is the, the view of church as held by the majority of Baptists in the world. And a church is an, a visible assembly of baptized believers united to exalt Christ, evangelize the lost, and overcome his enemies. The enemies are in the spiritual realm. It's a visible assembly of baptized believers united to exalt Christ, evangelize the lost, and overcome his enemies. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 and 2 now. Acts chapters 1 and 2. So the question is, what is a church? If we're going to build a triumphant church, well, we're going to start with this. And I'm going to give you three observations out of Acts chapters 1 and 2. Let's start with this. The members of the church. Let's start with the members of the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after, he that, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To also he showed himself alive after his passion, the word passion is the week of his suffering, the, the cruelty that he endured, by many infallible proofs. Okay, he showed himself alive by many indisputable, infallible proofs. Being seen of them 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together. And I circled in my Bible the phrase assembled together. There's the concept of church. Being assembled together with them. Commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye should be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, and I circled that phrase, come together, again, the concept behind a gathering, a church. They asked of him, Lord, wilt thou... He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. All right, now, jump down to chapter 2. So the Lord has been crucified, he's been re- resurrected, he's about to ascend back into heaven, which happens in chapter 1. When he ascends back to heaven, now notice the apostles are left on this earth as his ambassadors, his representatives. Now we come to chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now I circled that phrase, with one accord in one place. Notice, not only are they all gathered together, they're of like mind. There's unanimity, okay? They're all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. It sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, many love to focus on the speaking of tongues in the passage. Let me just say a word about the tongues because it's in our text. The word tongues used in Acts chapter 2 always comes from one of two sources. One is the word dialectos. We get our English word dialect from that term. The other word is glossolalia. We get our word glossary from that term. Glossolalia and dialectos. And here's why I'm telling you that. Tongues always had to do with a known language. It was not some kind of ecstatic gibberish. We have many today that that extol the so-called virtue of speaking in tongues, and they're referring to some ecstatic utterance, some unintelligible gibberish. That's dealt with in 1 Corinthians 14, where it's identified as an unknown tongue. And Paul deals with it as an abuse. The speaking of tongues was the articulation of a language which the speaker himself did not know. For instance, if I were to speak to you suddenly in German or Spanish or, frankly, any other language but English, it would be... Tongues, because I don't speak any language other than English. I am monolingual, okay? But if all of a sudden here I am speaking in my native tongue and you began to hear me in the tongue of your birth, that would be a miracle. It'd be like you see at the uh, at, uh, United Nations where they all have headsets on and people are hearing the language interpreted into their heads. Okay, so that would be what's going on here. Peter's speaking most likely in Aramaic. That was the common speak of the day. Aramaic, and they're hearing it in their own language. All right, so keep going with me. Chapter 2, and we got down to verse number uh, 4. Let's jump down a little bit. Go on down with me to verse number 14, if you will. 
But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, You men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you. Hearken to my words. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, starting in verse 16, you might note in the margin of your Bible, and if not, you might write it there, Peter's text for his sermon is from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Peter's about to read the text for his message, or probably not read, probably recite from memory. Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on the handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, that's the text, and most of you know verse 13. You say, oh, that's Romans 10, 13. Well, it predated Romans. It came from Joel 2, verse 32. And he says this in verse 22. Now he explains, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now I want you to think what's happening here. Peter is speaking to religious Jews. They've gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. There are Jews from all over the world. He said it wasn't too many weeks ago, six weeks to be exact, it wasn't too many weeks ago that you took Jesus of Nazareth. The man approved by God among you, verified among you by miracles, signs, and wonders, and with wicked hands, you took him and you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. You talk about bold, unashamed priest. Wait a minute. This was the guy that six weeks earlier had cussed and sworn that he didn't even know Jesus. What got into him? It's who got into him. It's the Spirit of God. Peter was changed, transformed by the Spirit of the living God. And now Peter is speaking with such boldness, they're astounded. And Peter goes on. Look down at verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus that God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Go go to verse 36. Let me jump to the end of the message. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. We're not so far into this. I think I need to make an amendment. I told you I'm going to deal with the members of the church. I I got ahead of myself. Make number one the message of the church, would you? We'll get to the members in a second. The message of the church. Sorry about that. Faux pas on my part. Message of the church. What was the message of the church? I remember one day I was walking down the hallway of my Christian school, Gloucester County Christian School in New Jersey where I grew up and my coach Mr. Ham came to me and uh, he said hey bud and many of you've heard this story from me before he said hey bud yeah coach what's the gospel and I said coach are you not saved he said Rich I'm saved I said you don't think I'm saved he said I've heard your testimony Rich I believe you're saved why are you asking me the gospel he said Rich you're going to be a preacher you better know what the gospel is what's the gospel I said well Christ died for our sins he said and well, see, I grew up Methodist where they taught that if you did enough good works, maybe your good works would outweigh your bad works, and hopefully God would be gracious and you'd get to heaven that way. So I didn't want there to be anything added to the gospel. I said, and nothing, coach. Christ did it all. He said, yes, but you haven't given me the gospel. I said, huh? He took me to 1 Corinthians 15. You might want to look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, which opens with this statement. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you've received, wherein you stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's the Gospel, folks. Christ died for our sins, not his. He had none. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. That's the gospel. And Coach said, Rich, if you don't preach the resurrection, you haven't preached the gospel. I've never forgotten that. That was the message of the church. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Why was that? 
scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. It's Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 there. And then he was raised again for our justification. Okay, so the gospel message is that Christ died for the sinner, he was buried, and that he rose again. That's the message of the church. All right? So Peter's preaching that. Now, interesting, when he got to verse 36, I mean, he rolled up his sleeves, as it were. He said, you took Jesus, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Now, was Peter attacking them? Was he putting blame on his fellow Jews? Some have said, well, you see, the, the Jews were Jesus killers. So let, me, let me tell you something. You're looking at the Jesus killer. It was my sins that put Jesus on the cross. It was your sin. Peter is not picking out the Jews to single them out. Oh, yes, they were the ones that took him before Pilate. Yes, they were personally guilty. So am I. So are you. The point is not it was the race of the Jews. It was my sins. It was your sins that put Jesus on the cross. The message of the church is that Jesus Christ willingly, voluntarily laid down his life to take up your sins and then rose again that you might be justified. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, what's that mean? Change your mind. Sin will never be acceptable to God. Sin is not a joke. Sin will never be wiped away by trying to do something good to make up for what's bad. No, there's no way you can make yourself acceptable to God. The only way to be made acceptable to God is through the atonement. It is that Christ died to make us at one with God. He rose again that we might be justified. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is not religious effort on your part that makes you reconciled to God. That's the message of the church. But that brings us to number two, where I got ahead. The members of the church. The members of the church. And I want you to notice this. Go back to chapter 1 for just a minute. And again, verse 4, being assembled together. How many were there at that time? Well, Jesus had just risen from the dead. You remember Judas had taken his life. There were 11 plus Jesus. The original group was 12, but one was dead now. All right, and then you go into uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 13. Look at this. They went up to an upper room where abode Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, with Jesus' brothers. See, by this point, James and the other brothers had come to believe in Jesus Christ after all those years. Once he rose again from the dead, then they believed. All right? Um, go on down to chapter 2 then. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We find out that in that upper room, there were about 120. So talk about exponential multiplication here. They had, they had gone from 12, originally Jesus' band of 12, to all of a sudden there are 120. But all that's going to change in a singular day. Keep going. So Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Now go down to where we left off. He had just told him that Jesus... You crucified, God raised from the dead. And look at verse 37 of chapter 2. This is their response. If you've got your Bible, I want you to see it. Okay, I want you to see what God says, not what I think. Now, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been pricked in your heart by something that God said to you? They were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? Okay, what do you mean men and brethren? Fellow Jews, brother Jews, what, what do we do? Isn't it interesting? They would stone Peter to death in chapter 6, chapter 7, end of chapter 7. But here, when Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Stephen, yeah, the martyr. But here, Peter preaches with great power. And what do they do? They're under great conviction. What do we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, let me explain there. The word be baptized for, and I know I've said this before, so forgive me for those of you, this is old, old, uh, territory for me, but the word for the remission of sins is like to leap for joy or cry for pain. You know, if you slam your finger in a door and you cry for pain, or somebody says, hey, here's a bonus check for $5,000. Woo! Okay, you jump for joy. Okay, for the remission of sins doesn't mean that the baptism takes away your sins. It's because your sins have been remitted, be baptized. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip, the evangelist, well, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? He figured, you know, Jesus' followers, I mean, when they, when they become a follower of Jesus, they get baptized. So I want to join the group. Well, it's kind of like I wear a wedding ring because I'm married. 
The ring did not make me married, but it's a symbol of my marriage. Baptism was a symbol of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So the, the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? He said, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then he took him and baptized him. So the baptism followed belief, and then he became part of a body, okay, a local body. So let me show you how that works out. So they said, what do we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. So it's through Jesus Christ your sins will be remitted. They'll be taken away. Verse 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, when he says save yourselves, does that mean they could literally do something to save themselves? It's like if somebody threw a life preserver to you and said, save yourself. How would you do it? You just grab the life preserver. Well, you just trust Jesus. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You trust him. Now, what's the response? Okay, here's where we learn the members of the church. Notice 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Okay, what do we learn about the members of the local church? A, they received the gospel message. No one should be a member of a church who has not first been personally born again. Being a member of Eagle Heights Baptist Church or any other Baptist church, or frankly, any church of any denomination will not get you to heaven. I've said this until you me saying it until I die, but if a church could save you, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Church cannot save you. Only Christ can save you. They gladly received his word. Then what happened? They were baptized. So they gladly received the gospel message. B, they were baptized in Jesus' name. By the way, baptized in Jesus' name does not mean Jesus' name to the exclusion of the Father and the Holy Ghost. There's an entire denomination built off this concept that you're baptized in Jesus' name. Well, let me explain. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. Okay, Uh, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The the Godhead is triune. He's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, I don't understand that. Would that surprise you that there's something about God you don't understand? It surprises me that we understand anything about God. He makes himself known to us, but he's beyond our comprehension. Okay, he's a triune God. So to baptize in Jesus' name is not saying now to the exclusion of the Father and the, and this, and the Spirit. Jesus has said you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Here you're baptized in Jesus' name. Now let me just tell you, the order is belief and then baptism. If any of you have never been baptized, I want to appeal to you. Once you're born again, you need to be baptized. I'm afraid of water. You know, we don't hold you under for three days and three nights. The baptism is a picture. I'm dead with Jesus Christ, I'm buried to the old life, and I'm risen to walk in a whole new life. That's why the mode is immersion. The word is... It is interesting how we we learn a lot by studying words. We make much of baptism through the study of the word. Think about ecclesia, a called out assembly. This whole message comes from the concept of what is a local assembly. Well, they gladly received his word. They were baptized in Jesus' name. But then I want you to see something else. They were added to a recognized company, letter C. They were added to a recognized company. All right, back to verse 49. They received his word. They were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Okay, this body went from 12 to 120, over 3,000. Over 3,000. And you talk about church growth. Where, Where do you meet with a group like that? Well, they would gather at the temple, meet outside if they had to. It's not the building that makes a church. My daughter's church, um, Lighthouse Baptist in Gulf Breeze, Florida, they've been in five buildings in five years. Recently, they're renting out the property of First Baptist Church in Gulf Breeze, and they have to meet in the afternoon. They have one o'clock in the afternoon. I wouldn't go to a church that met at one (laughs) o'clock. Who said 11 was the sacred hour? You know, who said what the time was is the sacred hour? You know why we gather on Sundays, don't you? commemoration of the resurrection of our Savior. Why Wednesdays, by the way? Many churches meet on Wednesday. That was the revival prayer movement of the 1850s. And prayer meetings started cropping up all over the country in, in, uh, in the 1850s. And that's why Wednesdays became the day. The early church met daily. Yeah, interesting. They, do you think everybody was there every day? Probably not. People had to work and such. But they, they were just gathering all the time. Hmm. Sometimes we think we're doing a great favor if we show up more than just a Sunday morning service. Let me tell you, you're not doing a favor to anyone. This is to worship God. 
So they, they were added to a recognized company. So they were saved, then baptized, then added unto them. This is where the concept of local church membership comes from. And by the way, about uh, 95% of all references to church in Scripture are very clearly to a local assembly. You know, in Revelation, to the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, the church at Philadelphia. Um, and then you have the letter to the church at Philippi, and you have the letter to the church at Colossae, and the, to the church at Thessalonica, etc., the church at Rome. Now, what do you do with Christ died for the church and gave himself for it? There are times that it's an institutional reference. Like if I said to you, man, I'll tell you something, the family is under attack today. Well, what am I talking about, the family? The Tozer family, the Groves, the Hammers, you... Yeah, every family. But we're talking about the institution of the family is under attack. And boy, is that an understatement. I mean, we, 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 we've gone so far, it, it's beyond just the definition of marriage now. We've we got a society trying to redefine sexes, genders. You talk about bizarro. Okay, and this is the ultimate attack against God. That's what it is. It's attack against God and his authority. And by the way, anyone who tries to attack God will lose. But there is an attack in our society against God. Now, they were added to a local company. Now, let me just say this. I, I remember going through wrestling. And by the way, I haven't even talked to Pastor about this. So um, I'm going to bring up something that I don't think he's going to have a problem with. But I remember when I was wrestling, okay, the concept of universal church versus local body. We all know there's a universal entity of believers. You know, it's called the body of Christ, etc., but I thought most every reference is to the local assembly, a church. So how do you find the balance in all that? Don't worry, I won't freak out where I'm going. But uh, I was talking to pa- Dr. James Crumpton one time. He was the pastor of Maranatha Baptist Mission in uh, Natchez, Mississippi. The man had two earned doctorates from Southern Baptist seminaries. He'd, he'd come out of the Southern Baptist back in the uh, 60s, I think it was. He pastored the Westside Baptist Church in Natchez, Mississippi for 57 years. He was the head of a mission board. Brilliant man. Uh, do you ever hear him at Bob Jones, Mike? Uh, James Crumpton? I don't know if you would have heard him. He made the circuit back then. I heard him. My era. Probably yours too. And a uh, brilliant guy. So one day I said to him, Dr. Crumpton, I, I, I've got to understand something. I've heard some people say that the church started at Pentecost. I've heard others say it started with Christ and the apostles. I'm trying to, how do you find a balance in all that? And I said, and then there's the, what's the whole idea of a universal assembly versus the local is there such a thing as a universal church? He had this little glimmer in, glimmer in eyes. He said, well, brother, the book of Hebrews talks about the general assembly of the saints. He said, one day we're all going to be gathered together in heaven, and that will be the first meeting of the universal body. And he said, then the assembly will be assembled. Then the church will be gathered. He said, but in the meantime, the gathering goes on in local bodies. I said, okay. That makes sense. So he said, I think it was Dr. Clearwater's, uh, called it the church in prospect. That is, what you have today is a universal band of believers that's the church in prospect. One day we'll all be gathered together in heaven. But the work is being done by local assemblies. Are we okay where I'm going so far? Okay. And, uh, and then I said this, what about the origins of the church? You know, was it, was it with Christ and the apostles or was it at Pentecost? And this was the best explanation I'd ever heard. He said, Brother Rich, it is always occurred to me that church is not an organization, it's an organism. Organisms are living entities, and organisms grow and develop. He said, I've always been of the persuasion that the church was conceived, as it were, in the womb of Christ and made viable on the day of Pentecost. Think about that. Conceived in the womb of Christ, as it were, to use the maternal analogy, and then made viable. That's like we talk about a birthday. Well, I was born October 9th, 1966. That's my birthday. But guess what? I was a human being before October 9th, 1966. Nine months before that, in fact. If you understand that life begins at conception, I was a human before I was birthed. The church originated with the Lord Jesus. Are you okay with that? It's okay for me saying that? Okay. So, and again, this is not the doctrine of, I'm not speaking for our church collectively. I'm just telling you how I had to wrestle through this. and kind of, So I am of the persuasion that the church started with the Lord, but it's, you call it's birth, the Pentecost. But I want to tell you, the emphasis on church and scripture is local assemblies. Okay, why is all that important? Because you are a member of Eagle Heights Baptist Church. Many of you are. Some of your members elsewhere. Okay, great. What's the purpose of being a member? So we have the members of the church. They receive the gospel message. I wonder, have you? Just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're a Christian. I, I sat over here with pastor and I'm watching with, with joy as I'm watching young men 
and some girls as, as during the singing time, just singing with enthusiasm. That, that touched my heart. That did my heart good to see the kids, not just the parents. You know, and but I want to tell you something. You can grow up and know church lingo and still die and go to hell. I don't say that unkindly. But listen, you're not going to go to heaven just because your mom and dad are Christians. Each of us individually must be born again. So they received the gospel message. Then they were added to a, uh, I'm sorry, they were baptized in Jesus' name. Then they were added to a local assembly. And there's one more observation. They continued steadfastly in worship. They continued steadfastly in worship. What does worship look like in the scripture? It's not smoke pots and dance teams and contemporary music. What is worship? Well, let's take a look at it, all right? Verse 41, where I left off. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added to them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice the first thing said about the local assembly was they continued in solid doctrine. You know, as soon as I got off on the topic of church a minute ago, some of you are right with me and others of you are like, Suddenly I shifted into the Charlie Brown teacher mode. You know, womp, 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 womp. Like, whatever. Okay, woo, make your head spin. What does it really matter? Learn to love Bible doctrine. Learn to embrace the truth. It is the foundation on which all of life, from which all of life emanates. You, the, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. These people were steadfast in doctrine. One of the reasons this became known as Eagle Heights Baptist Church was the idea of we want to, we want to, to rise to the heights of eagles. We don't want to just be fledgling little believers, you know, and, well, so glad we're saved and we all go to church. We want to be grounded in the things of God. We want to be rising to new heights, and you can't do that without being steadfast in doctrine. Okay, so they continued steadfastly in doctrine. What else? And fellowship. You know what that is? Getting together, enjoying each other's company. Fellowship and breaking of bread. Now, the initial concept here is the Lord's table, where you gather together for the elements of what we know as communion, the Lord's table. Uh, and then notice this, breaking, uh, later they'll talk about breaking bread from house to house, that's different. Uh, and in prayers, verse 42, you know, Pastor and I, after we played tennis last night, we did the important stuff after we went to QT. After QT, then we, we sat in the car and we prayed. I mean, we earnestly prayed. We're supposed, it's not just because I'm the evangelist, he's the pastor. I pray with people all the time. Do you pray with people? They pray. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of what? Prayer. Are you here on Wednesday so we can pray together? When do we pray together? Pastor and I were talking about that last night. He said, you know, I really want to get back to some of these prayer meetings that some of us used to meet at 6 o'clock in the morning. That was not my idea, but it was a good prayer meeting. You know, we'd get together at 6 in the morning and, and we'd pray on Sundays and when do you pray? They pray, they gather in prayers. And then notice this, uh, verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things common. Now I want you to notice, this is not socialism. Socialism is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's coerced by government. That's not what the book of Acts is talking about. This is a voluntary sharing. It's a totally different thing. Uh, they, were, they were sharing because they cared. Um, verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man have need. I've often quoted Tony Holland. Tony has often said, you know, when a church functions the way God intends, nobody should have any needs. When a church functions the way God intends, nobody should have any needs. What does that mean? We look out for each other. We try to help each other in our time of needs. Verse 46, and they continuing, notice this, daily with one accord in the temple. Let me ask you, how often is daily? Every day. Daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now, that's not the Lord's table. That's having meals with people outside of church. When was the last time you got together with somebody for a meal outside of church? I've been in churches, honestly, where people that sit on one side of the auditorium don't know people from the other side of the auditorium. That's tragic. When was the last time you got with somebody outside of your own little clique? Just, hey, we're going to have so-and-so over so we can get to know them. Okay? Breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness. Oh, got to go to church again. No, they're excited. There's joyfulness, gladness, and singleness of heart. Praising God and having a favor with all the people. Okay, notice, praise to God. And favor with all the people. Why? Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Having favor with all the people. And then notice this, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. How often were people getting saved in Jerusalem? Every day. In fact, you go into chapter 3, 
you have what I call the high step and hallelujah you shout in hitherto handicapped Hebrew. The man who is hitherto lame, and Peter raises him up, and he's walking, leaping, and praising God. Chapter 4, you got 5,000 men and their families come to saving faith. So the church goes from 3,000 plus on Pentecost to another 5,000. The population of Jerusalem at the time was about 80,000. You've got 10% of the city that's come to saving faith. What would that do to Kansas City? Local church was never meant to stay in its own little confines. Thank the Lord pastors rekindled the burden to get out and go and tell. That brings us to the last thought I want you to see is the mission of the church. The mission of the church. What was the mission? Okay, we've looked at the message. It's the gospel. We looked at the members. They were believers who had been baptized, who were added to a local body, and continued in worship. But what's the mission of the church? Go back to Acts 1.8. The Savior said it here. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. You know, I slipped out a minute ago to go into the tract room because I, I wanted to grab some more of these while I'm home. This particular tract called Peace Is It Yours, I've been using this prolifically during the shutdown. Let me just give you a simple little way to get out the tract. We were at uh, QT last night. I gave one to the gal at the counter, and there was a mom and two daughters. It was like the Tozer family. They're out there at 12.15, a mom and two daughters having a... It's a girl's night, one of them told me, a nine-year-old, like my little nine-year-old. And uh, I said, hey, I love girl night. And they looked at me like, weird. I said, I have all daughters in my house, you know, and I kind of winked at the little girl. And I, I gave this to the mom. I said, hey, I want to give you an invite to Eagle Heights Baptist Church. He's the pastor. I'm on staff there. And we're just 10 minutes from here. Oh, okay. And you know, my typical approach in this day and age, um, I, I'll hand them this particular track because it says peace. <laughs> Is there much peace in our world right now? Oh, boy. Okay, so I'll say, you know what? We're living in a day, there's a lot of bad news, and people always go, yeah. But I want to tell you, there's some good news. And there's some good news. I hope you'll take some time to read it later today. What's your name? Can, may I pray for you today? Pray that you'll be safe. Pray that God can speak to your heart. Simple little ways to get out the gospel. That's the mission of the church. Let me give you this, so you might jot them down. Each of the gospel narratives mentions the Great Commission in one form or another. You all know the first one, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. Amen. But then there's Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to whom? Every creature. Now, you can't personally go to every creature, but you may think, well, who's the right person to talk to? They're all the right person to talk to. There's no wrong person to talk to. So, pray that God will give you wisdom who to talk to. Hey, another thing I like to do, we have those tracks in there for um, thank you for your service. It's for police and firemen and medical people. I keep them in my pocket. I do a lot of evangelism at QT. Um, so when I see the police in there, I'll just go up and say, hey, I want to give you something. I'm on staff at Eagle Heights Baptist down the road here. And I just want you to know, I pray for you guys every day. And I do. When I'm out of, this, out of the state, I'm praying for our police and local authorities every day. And I tell them, I pray for you. I pray for God's protection. Thank you for what you do. I remember talking to a guy two months ago when I was home. It was in the middle of all the, just the nut stuff that was going on. And I said, um, I'm sure you've had a rough go. He said, you know, it was 70 hours I put in last week. I said, thank you for serving. And I said, how can I pray for you? He said, honestly, it comes with the territory. He said, I expect the pushback. He said, I'd just like to have some time with my family. That's a legitimate desire, isn't it? They're people, folks, and they need encouragement just like you do. And so look for opportunities on all fronts to pray for people, to minister to people. Uh, here's another one. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 46. That's where Jesus says that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in all the world, beginning at Jerusalem. And then one more is John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. The mission of the church is to take the gospel from here into all the world. You've been in church buildings where you see the sign, you are now entering the mission field. It's true. Listen to this, and I close with this. A fellow had attended a conference for youth ministers, and he heard this story. He said at this youth pastor's conference years ago, I, I heard a story that really caused me to shudder and think. It was a story of a teen who tried to join a youth group. He was small and awkward and seemingly unlovable. None of the other teenagers wanted anything to do with him. 
the youth pastor invited him to take a youth trip with the group to an amusement park. The other kids shunned him. The youth pastor couldn't recall if he himself had spent any time with the new kid. Instead, he, the youth pastor, spent all his time with the popular members of the group. No one would pair up with the new kid or reach out to him because they considered him to be undesirable. So he roamed the amusement park all by himself. He was a skinny loner whom no one wanted to befriend. His name was Brian Warner. He was a shy, reclusive, timid youth that nobody wanted to show and model the love of Christ to because they were too busy in their own cliques. He got in the way of their private agendas. So Brian left disillusioned. This was perhaps his one last hope for receiving care and love. Yet there was no Christ-like outreach from the people who were called to be the best at it. Since love and care were not presented, Brian received none. He grew up and changed his name. He took, the famous, he took uh, for a first name that of a famous actress and the last name that of a serial killer. His stage name is, Brian, is uh, Marilyn Manson. Maybe you've heard of Marilyn Manson. Marilyn from Marilyn Monroe, Manson, Charles Manson. I remember watching a documentary of him one time. He's apparently referring to some Christian protesters outside of the auditorium. He holds up a Bible. He says, it says here you've got to be saved to go to heaven. This is in his concert. Holds up a Bible. Let's tell them what we think about that. And he throws the Bible out in the concert hall. And at that time, he had popularized a song called Antichrist Superstar. Among other songs was National Hate Anthem. Shoot them all. Let God sort them out. How did it come to this? Well, Brian Warner had actually grown up in Ohio. He was from a home where mom and dad had a marriage, but it was a rather dysfunctional marriage. He was sent to a Christian school. I met some people that were in the Christian school that he went to for just a very short time. They said, yeah, we had to kick him out because during chapel he was sneaking around under all the chairs, stealing things out of girls' purses. The sad thing was, dysfunctional as he was, he never really found any genuine love from any Christian. When his family moved to Florida and he went on that amusement park trip, that was his one last chance of contact with the youth group. And he decided, well, if Christians are all interested in their clique, they're obviously not interested in me, then that must not be for me. And we all sit here and say, that's terrible. Let me ask you, where are you getting out of your own confines? How are you busting out of your clique? Where are you engaging in the mission? The mission is people. The members of the church are to take the message of the church and engage in a sacred mission to win to all the world. Preach the gospel to every creature. Would you bow with me? Lord, I thank you that you've given us every equipment that we need, every bit of